I am Dr. Barbara Kiao, and some clients prefer to call me Dr. Bibi. Welcome to my podcast. To be honest, a podcast that is born out of mental health advocacy. I believe in the power of intention, and my intention for this podcast is to educate whoever wishes to listen, be aware of the importance of making a paradigm shift in how we perceive mental illness. I also strongly believe mental health education is key. And that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is to invest in your own mental health. Let's face it: we all need to learn how our minds work and give people the skills to deal with life's ups and downs. Most important of all, let us strengthen our ability to better connect with. And support each other. Strong, empathetic, nurturing, and caring relationships have the power to prevent everyday challenges from becoming more concerning issues like mental illness. The responsibility to renew focus on your own mental health begins right now. Hello, everybody. This is Doctor Bibi. For the listeners who missed last week's episode, then you wouldn't know I have a treat for you. But don't worry; the treat continues this week, and also the last part of my interview with my special guest, Doctor Sally Spencer Thomas, will be part three. In next week's episode. So before I introduce her to you, for the benefit of those who missed last week's episode, let us set the energy of this episode together. So you may wish to put your hand on your heart and close your eyes. Unless you're driving or operating heavy machinery, then don't do that. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for five seconds, and let it out with a sigh. Now let your thoughts go. Let your past go. Take a moment to plug into the greater energy of the universe. Feel your heart. And imagine us all connected in a unified field of divine white light. And know that you are safe. All is well, and so it is. So take another deep breath in. Hold it. Let it out with a sigh. And when you are ready, slowly open your eyes. Our special guest 
Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Empathy, intelligence, and vision that bring change, save lives, and ease suffering. These words best describe Dr. Spencer Thomas and her work to prevent suicide and people sustain a passion for living. Dr. Sally is a clinical psychologist and award-winning mental health advocate with her own personal experience of losing her beloved brother to suicide. Her mission of giving voice to people who have lived through suicide thoughts, attempts. And loss help those in despair see what's possible. Doctor Sally has a TED talk and gave an invited address at the White House in 2016. Her impressive list of clients, past and present, includes the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, Chubb Insurance, and Southwest. She has also spoken and consulted internationally, including Australia, Ireland, Singapore, Taiwan, Denmark, and Belgium. In addition to helping leaders and communities implement innovative approaches to suicide prevention, Dr. Sally is the lead author on the National Guidelines for Workplace Suicide Prevention. Executive Secretary for the American Association of Suicidology, and President of United Suicide Survivors International, she also co-edits the Guts, Grit, and the Grind book series that provides men and the people who love them with tools to help them better understand and cope with life's challenges. When she is not out flying around seeking and training, you can find her in her fuzzy slippers in her home office with her loyal dog Rocky at her feet, or up at twelve thousand feet backpacking along the Colorado Trail. Here is the second part of my interview and conversation with Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. I wrote in my email to you a couple of weeks ago that maybe we all can reduce the stigma against mental health by realizing that it's not a personal shortcoming or a character flaw or a moral weakness. And it's interesting. You wrote me back saying you have a different take on stigma. Yes. Well, this is another funny story. So, you know, when when Carson died and we pulled together our group, we've actually formed an organization, a nonprofit.、Um, and I would often say, I think my brother died of stigma more than he died of his mental health condition because he had a lot of shame.、Um, and so, I believe that to be true. And so, that was the business card, the tagline. You know, we're removing the stigma of mental illness, and I had 1,500 business cards printed up, and I was so excited、um, because that seemed like a very worthy mission. And one of the first things that we did was to invite a well-renowned professor of psychiatry to the university that I was working at,、um, Dr. Kay Redfield Jamison. She does have some what of an international reputation. Brilliant writer. She had been an inspiration to me because she very openly wrote about her own. 
experiences with bipolar condition. Anyway, she was a hero for me. And so we raised enough money with our little group to invite her to come. And I was driving out to the airport to go pick her up. And I felt like I was meeting, you know, Bono. I was so excited <laughs> to, to see this woman. And she gets in my car and we're driving back to the university for her keynote that night. And I say, Dr. Jameson, how do we remove the stigma of mental illness? And she went, oh. and I was like, oh, what? She said, mm. I said, what? And she said, oh, first of all, stop using that word. And I went, why? And then I thought 1500 business cards. What? Oh my gosh. But as soon as she said it, I knew she was right. And here's the deal. So our brains are hardwired to remember the negative. So the more we talk about stigma, the more we are actually reinforcing its relationship to mental health conditions. Mm. So there's been all kinds mm. of tests on myths versus facts. That's another thing we love to do. Like, here's the myth. Here's the fact you do, you do, po you do post tests on that. Guess what people remember? They remember the myths. Our brains are hardwired to remember the problems, the negative, the things like that are not good. It's a survival mechanism. So the more we talk about the stigma of mental health, the more we're just reinforcing that connection. So I was like, all right, uh, what is it actually? What is it actually? And then how do we address it? So when you dig below, so stigma is what we call an undetermined word, which means there are multiple definitions, multiple layers. Um, and we don't always mean the same thing when we talk about it, but generally speaking, stigma is put on the, on the onus of it is put on the person, like a gray cloud around them. It's some kind of gray cloud around them that people, that they're afraid to interact with other people. People are afraid to interact with them, that kind of thing. Um, and when you really look into it, what it really is, is bias. And bias, we have a lot more understanding of. We have brain science on bias. We understand that we are also hardwired to, to have bias, right? So there's some like, Okay, you're hardwired, so you're going to you're going to trip over yourself here, but here's how you get through it, right? So we just have a different understanding of bias and we realize we are all responsible for our own mm. bias. Stigma is too vague and undetermined. So so shifting the language to stigma from stigma to bias shifts the the feelings around it a little bit. Um, and then when you look at the work of Patrick Corrigan, who has done decades of work around reducing bias uh, with mental health conditions. Um, he, his major conclusions are really insightful. So he looked at three ways to address it. One was to educate people, educate people, educate people, raise awareness. We all love to do that. Raise awareness, educate people on the statistics and on the diagnostic categories and all that stuff, all that stuff. Um, the second category was more of a shame category. So if you, if you, if you, if you were biased in any way, oh, wow, we're in oh. your face. We are calling you out. We are correcting you and boom. Okay. So that was category number two. Category number three was what he called, um, the contact category. So it was basically connection. You know, so you would get to know people who had the biased condition. You would get to know them. You would hang out with them. You would build relationships with them. You would do stuff together, whatever. Uh, so the findings were very clear. The education only section 
um, actually had what we call a state trooper effect. So when the awareness and discussion about the topics were in front of people, the bias went down. People were open to it. They were interested, but then like a state trooper, I don't know. It if dies you, out. Yeah. Right. It dies out. When you go into the rear view mirror, you go exactly back to what you were doing before the, the, the shaming thing, like calling you out and don't use that word, blah, blah, blah. That actually made the bias worse because people were like, whoa, I don't want to go anywhere near you. And so when we look at the diversity, equity, inclusion stuff that's happening in the United States, I'm like, y'all were kind of making it worse when we were calling people out and making them feel ashamed because people just hide in the corners, right? right? Because they're afraid. It was the, it was the relationship building category, the contact category that had long lasting decreases in bias because we worked through our own brains, hardwiring defects when we got to know a whole person and we got to see, oh, wow, I thought they were so different than me. Turns out they're much more like me than different. And so all of a sudden, rather than us and them, those different people and us over here, we're a we. And whenever we get into the we category, we, we are so much better. We, you know, we again, all kinds of social uh, sociology studies of when we see ourselves as a we, we are very, we're kinder, we're generous, we help each other out, blah, 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 blah. Um, so the way through the, what we previously determined as stigma that we now can call bias, the way we get through that, I see is twofold. Um, stories, for one, the stories that we tell that, again, create that connection, the empathic stories that create, oh, you're much more like me than different. Oh, you've gone through something similar. Uh, and science. I, t- I still like science. So mm-hmm. w- when we have powerful stories that connect us and create a we, and we have powerful science that combat any kind of idea of moral failing or anything, any of the buckets that we have judgment around, those two things are like the one-two punch of decreasing bias. And we've seen it in other places. We've seen it in uh, in cancer. We've seen it in LGBTQ communities. You know, any place that has that bias, you would throw out some really powerful stories and some awesome science, and it's really hard to hold your bias against that. So that's my view mm. on state stigma. <laughs> mm, interesting. I must check out uh, Dr. Patrick Corgan's work then. It's a survival instinct, right? To remember what is going to harm us. And I agree with you, Sally, mentioning about sharing stories. It's very important because that's where we get the connection, right? That's the we, not not I. I feel alone. That's how we got our connection. Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> I, I want you to share with my listeners about your, uh, you are co-editing about, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guts, grit, and Grind? Yes, very good. Guts, guts, <laughs> yeah, grit, and the you, grind. Yes, yes. Yeah, tell, tell, tell us more, please. Yeah. So again, going back to Carson's story, I truly believed, still do, that if he had one peer, one person that was in his social group or in his work group that said, oh, wow, you have bipolar condition? I have bipolar condition. Like, we're going to be fine. Like I figured some stuff out, you know, I'll walk with you during this hard time. Like we'll get to, he, if he had one peer that had reached out and said, you're not alone. I'm with you. We'll figure this out together. I think he would have had a much better fighting chance of staying. So knowing that and knowing that in the United States, and I think in Australia as well, they know the majority of people who die are men of working age. They are often one attempt. It's fatal. 
that if you've ever seen a mental health provider, like this is a group of people that is falling through the cracks often because they're socialized to be self-reliant, not show weakness. Um, and then they tend to have fairly biased views around mental health. So mm-hmm. they're least likely to raise their hand and say, I need help for my depression. Um, and so that seems still today, a very important gap to fill. And knowing that it's the stories that connect us and knowing how many of these men are very much suffering by themselves, white knuckling it through this stuff, stories, men telling Mm. stories with each other is a very powerful tool that we have. So (laughs) it was 2017 or so, my good friend and colleague and rebel rouser, uh, Sarah Gear. She comes to me one day and she says, Sally, I got a crazy idea. Now I know when Sarah Gear comes to me and says, Sally, I have a crazy idea. <laughs> run, run, <laughs> run far away. So she says, I think it would be great if we pulled together a men's anthology of stories of all kinds of different men from around the world, going through all kinds of different hardship and, and highlighting not only their hardship, but their resilience, their pathways forward, what they each learned, um, what were their takeaways? How do they maintain wellness and resilience today? What has been the ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys of their journey, et cetera, et cetera. And so I like, oh, that sounds like great fun. I love storytelling. I think this could be a really useful tool. Um, so we put out a, a call for submissions and we really wanted the men to frame their stories in the framework of the hero's journey. So for those of you who are familiar with this kind of archetype storytelling structure, um, and once you know it, you see it everywhere because it's really in all of our action films and most of our novels and all this stuff. But basically you have, you know, you set the scene with the hero who is living a life, you know, that ha- that that's before the downward fall, right? So you get a glimpse mm-hmm. of what they lost in the in some kind of downward spiral dark forest um and that at some point when they are really in a dark place there's a threshold that they have to step through uh, a turning point and often in real life there's many of these but there's mm. some moment when they knew there's a moment when they knew that something had to be different and then the rest of the hero's journey arc is about that upward and outward journey and the trials and tribulations and who's the, who are the guides along the way and what was the magic that they brought. And then at the end of the story, often we'll hear what, you know, we call the great reward. So what did I, what did I gain from going into that dark forest that I would not have had today if I did not survive that. Right. So it's really powerful um, story structure because it reframes the hardship and the suffering and maybe the mistakes um, in a light of growth. And it sets up the storyteller to frame their own internal narrative from a perspective of triumph and growth and all of these things that we want people to be saying about themselves rather than I'm a victim or, you know, some kind of thing that's stuck in the past. Um, So we set the guys up to think about, a moment in time, not their entire life, but a moment in time where they had that turning point from hardship into mm-hmm. post-traumatic growth or, or some kind of resilience part of their journey uh, and, and, and write it out. And pretty soon we had an 1,000 page document <laughs> because there were so many stories that came in again from men all yeah. over the world 
Um, and we're like, well, we can't have a thousand page document for a men's book on mental health. No one will ever <laughs> buy it or read it. So, um, we divided into a series of four books, um, yeah. with one book focusing on, you know, in clinical words to protective factors. So yeah. what were the men learning about building community and, and wellness and all kinds of things that are more upstream. The midstream book is how did they learn to catch things early um, or to cope with everyday challenges that we all face like grief and anger and relationship conflicts. And then downstream, um, which is the book we're working on now, which is really about crisis and addiction and trauma and suicide and so forth. Um, so, but the, the, the books are beautiful. There's, it's a combination of storytelling also for mental health professionals. There are worksheets that the men can use when they're teasing out some ideas about themselves on some of these different concepts. Um, and then there's quite a bit of, of science and resources and tools all along the way. So we wanted it to be a very practical hands-on book that was also inspiring for the guys. Um, so in the whole process of doing this since 2017, not only do we have three of the four books done, still got to do that last one someday soon. Um, but we forged a community. <laughs> we forged a community of, I think we're upwards of 70 men from US, Australia, Canada, uh, UK. And uh, it's just been delightful to watch these men get to know each other. We've served on panels at conferences together. They've gone off and spun off and did other collaborative things together. And, um, you know, that's where the real healing happens, right? When you get to know each other and then start to develop these bonds. So it's been a great project. Guts, Grit, and the Grind is the name of the book series. The website is gutsgritgrind.org. I think it's .org. Okay. I got to go look. .org or .com, I don't remember. <laughs> but Guts, Grit, Grind. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. That's where we can get access still. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Guts, grit, and the grind. The website will take you to all of the books and the community and the the media that we've gotten and all kinds of things. Um, it's for sale on Amazon, so that's usually easy for people. But yep. Okay. Great. Great stuff. All right, listeners. This is the end of part two of my interview with Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. And the final part of our conversation will be next episode. So until next week, stay safe, learn heaps, and find the courage to be honest. Bye for now. You can find this podcast, to be honest, on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and my website, www.drbarbarakiao.com. D-R-B-A-R-B-A-R-A-K-I-A-O.com. <laughs>